Welcome to the Uncapped Podcast, presented by Roast House Pub and Idiom Brewing Company in Frederick, Maryland, as well as Havoc Brew Supply, the one-stop shop for all of your brewery's needs. Check them out at hophavoc.com. Hey everyone, I'm your host Chris Sands, and today I'm joined by Kelly Meyer, all the way from somewhere in Texas. Where in Texas are you? I tell everybody if you fly into Austin and drive south, right about the time it stops sucking, that's where we are. It's uh, right in the middle of San Antonio and Austin. I thought I thought uh, Austin is supposed to be where it's amazing and all dreams come true. Yeah, that's actually one of the reasons I like saying it. Just let people know that's not entirely empirically <laughs> true. But, no, it's a cool city for sure. It uh, it's changed a lot in the last ten years, as it where everyone has, I'm sure. But so uh, as a quick introduction, Kelly is a former brewery owner. Um, an entrepreneur in general, a writer, a uh, podcaster, uh, and believes that the craft beer industry is imploding. That might be a little hyperbole, but that's kind of what uh, the niche that you've kind of uh, carved yourself out at. Is that is that accurate to say? I think it's fair to say. I don't, I don't know if I'd say, again, hyperbole, but I do think that the more importantly, the craft beer industry is facing some massive problems and some big roadblocks, and the general media refuses to to report it. So let's 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 say that. Yeah, I, I would say you're anti the blind optimism that people have historically had about the craft beer industry. Yeah, when I was on the Brewbound podcast, they used the term toxic positivity. And I, okay. I was like, that's exactly what it is. <laughs> <laughs> that is a good way. Although I, I think that uh, we are kind of entering an age of maybe toxic negativity uh, as the as things unfold over the, what, the last, I would say six months is when the fever pace probably hit of... Um, the new everyday new uh, closing or fire sale from a large brand that had purchased up craft breweries. So the well, yeah, actually, for sure. Why don't Why don't we start out with like you just give a quick synopsis about yourself? Um, what brought you into the craft beer world and how you got to where you are now? Sure. Uh, Short answer, I started my first business at 27, which was the almost antithesis of craft beer. My wife and I owned eight fitness centers and grew that into a company that we sold. And like most guys that sell and have some cash and the ability to do what they want when they're in their mid-30s, I was like, we got to go into booze. Like That that sounds (laughs) like a blast. So uh, it was for me, it was either going to be, this is literally what I said. I sat down and I was like, I want to either do uh, Napa Cabernet, Scotch whiskey or beer. And clearly we needed to move for any of the other ones, but yeah. beer living in Texas. And so we did that. So we opened a brewery and I brought a lot of those influences into it back in 2011 and spent uh, a 10 year sentence doing that. And after we finally sold the brewery in 2021, I had written a book about what we had done wrong. I had started this podcast and just really kind of saw the industry from 2011 to 2020 really just collapsed in on itself in a place that I didn't think there was anywhere for profitability. And so that's sort of the idea of the podcast. We're exploring where that could be since I don't seem to find anybody who knows where it is. So I I recently watched the, uh, you had uh, on your YouTube channel, you had a video kind of like giving a rundown of 
um, the lifespan of your brewery. And mm-hmm. I, I would say that like there were, there were a lot of things that happened to you and your business that really weren't an industry problem. They were kind of like missteps or other headwinds that aren't really industry specific. So do, do you do you think that just the the industry as a whole is flawed or just that there are there are so many at this point headwinds against craft beer that it could be really easy to make a misstep? Uh, I think a better way to explain it would simply be to say that in a lot of industries and there's another podcast that I like love, love to listen to called How I Built This. And the story That's a great of how podcast. I built this is like, yeah, so you've heard it? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> all right. So I summarize, I summarize all of them into this basic category. We started really small. We barely had any money. We almost went out of business. We got saved. We almost went out of business again. We blew up. We're multimillionaires and like we made a billion dollars and we're super successful. And that you can't see that recreated in craft beer. And, and I believe the reason is that those macro situations that are pushing everybody down don't create enough room in the middle to make those mistakes recover and then grow. Um, like Red Hook's a good example. When when they opened in the late 80s, their first year and a half, they made infected beer. Like they had a yeast culture that was people would make fun of it and call it like the weird banana beer. <laughs> you try to do that today, you'll be out of business in three months. Like you're done. But Red Hook sells for hundreds of millions of dollars, partners with AB. You know what I mean? Like there, yeah. there was room in the market 40 years ago that there isn't today, I guess, in a way. Oh yeah, you definitely can't open and suck at this point. There's no like f- f- even f- well, at least I don't know like where um, on the timeline Texas is, uh, but Maryland trailed uh, because of laws and uh, just other factors. The cr- craft beer a little bit. So we've we're in a wave now that it's it's probably been like five years that you you can't get away with that like six or so years ago seven years ago you can open a brewery maybe not be putting out the best beer but either people didn't know that it wasn't great beer or they were still willing to uh give you a chance to improve because there wasn't as much of an option but now i mean there are some areas of my town where there are five breweries within you know, like a short little walking distance of each other, which I think any even moderately sized city has that at this point. For sure. And I think one of the issues that the consumer runs into is that it was also easier to pick back then. So you could decide, well, I like Richard at Rocket Frog. He's a cool guy. So I'm just going to buy his beer and be a fan. And now there's five breweries that also make a pretty good IPA. And you're like, I don't know which one, why this, my, my buddy drinks that one or this one's on sale this month. Like, how do you get that same level of loyalty and attention today? I, I don't have a great answer for you on that one. I, um, I would think the only answer that really matters at this point, well, as long as places are putting out good beer. So we'll start at the default. Yes. They're all putting out good beer is really the experience you provide in the tap room. I think that's at this point, the only, thing that matters 
Yeah, and that's one of the problems that I've seen kind of repeated over and over in the podcast is either you mentioned that Maryland was behind what you think of as the curve for the U.S. craft beer scene overall, and every market has its own timeline and its own um, sort of like trajectory within it. For Texas, for example, we opened in 2012. The law changed in 2014, I believe it was, to allow tasting rooms uh, as far as a, from a revenue perspective. Yeah. You, you had taps in there. You could charge a, what do you call it, the tour model. Um, but so the people who opened then, we didn't open an experiential tasting room because yeah, you we couldn't. You <laughs> opened with just distribution in mind, right? Right. Or you were a brew pub and the brew pub opened with no distribution in mind. And so you had to yeah. choose one or the other. They changed the laws and it wasn't like you could just take the existing space you have and turn it into something beautiful. You needed money, typically more space, probably have to bring on another investor. And if we're being honest, most breweries weren't profitable at that time. And so they were having to dig deeper into the red to be able to come up with a new model that hopefully would work. Yeah. Maryland was kind of fairly along that same timeline, at least from the being being able to sell a pint in your tap room. Uh, it just took a little while from when that law changed to when the local governments put licenses into place and then when places started to open. So we have like a wave of like these 10 or so year old breweries that opened uh with just either they were a brew pub and they still are just a brew pub uh, or they opened with just building like the only thing they could do was build out a distribution network and they everything went out the door. Uh, some of those have since then moved into a different location where they built out a tap room when it became legal for that. And then some just have tried to adapt other ways. So how, yeah, was- how many, it's like around 50 uh, cl- failed breweries that you've um, talked to? So far that I've actually interviewed, yes. Um, there, There's a, a lot more I have now scheduled than I ever have had, but yes. <laughs> so actually that, that was something I, I think it was just yesterday I was thinking about. And yes, we're seeing way more closures than ever. However, as a percentage of breweries is it more than it's ever been? Because it, you would still have a brewery close here and there you know, like five years ago, but there are way fewer breweries. So like, I, I, I was, I, I briefly thought of like trying to do that research and then it sounded like way too much work. Uh, so then I would figure it's a thought experiment now. <laughs> so like <laughs> as a percentage, are well, there still more breweries closing now than there were five or so years ago. Uncapped is brought to you by one of Frederick's original Maryland craft beer destinations located off of Urbana Pike, featuring a warm, inviting atmosphere and knowledgeable staff serving up fresh, locally sourced culinary creations and unique craft beers on tap. Open seven days a week, our friends at Roast House Pub invite you to enjoy a casual lunch, happy hour specials, delicious dinners, and specialty desserts. Follow them on social media to keep up to date on their monthly beer dinners, on spaghetti dinner battles, and what beer is being featured for Buck Above Monday. Idiom Brewing Company proudly offers a delicious variety of beers to satisfy the most discerning tastes. Best known for their wide array of IPAs, delicious fruited sours, and robust porters and stouts. 
Idiom has a simple goal in mind, to bring people from all walks of life together, to enjoy themselves and each other. Whether you're a hophead looking for explosively juicy IPAs, are one of the adventurous few looking to try boozy, sour, or complex flavors, or just looking to enjoy classic styles and seasonal favorites, they'll have a little something for you. Idiom Brewing Company is located in downtown Frederick, just south of the intersection of East Street and East Patrick Street, with ample seating directly on Carroll Creek. Well, I mean, I can give you a quick number. So in 2015, we lost 100 breweries by the BA's numbers, and there were almost 5,000. Um, so then last year we lost 300 and there were 9,500. So it's slightly higher in the sense that 100 for every 5,000, but, um, I don't think it's dramatically higher yet. Yeah. So that is part of, so it's one of those things where like at the face of it, it sounds like the sky is falling doom and gloom, but like when you look at it from a percentage standpoint, it's not really much worse than it's ever been. Right. Slightly ticked up, but not, not dramatically worse. No. Now that I would definitely say brewery openings have dramatically, uh, slowed down. Although we still, I mean, we're still seeing breweries constantly open in this area. Um, but I think I, I don't, do you think that is less of a desire of people wanting to get into it or more of a function of just the capital markets have completely tried up for people to get money to open them? Uh, there's a mix. And so, you know, one of the things that Aaron Gore, uh, online personality likes to argue with me about all the time. Is <laughs> I've, had, I've had him on as a guest before. <laughs> okay. There you go. So you can't have blanket statements that cover every nook and cranny of America. Yeah. I'll give you that. But if we're trying to talk about it from a macro sense, I think a big part of it is that there are a, a way too many brewery owners in the United States, and I would even count myself in that camp in 2011 when I opened, that just don't have experience in education when it comes to what it takes to run, A, this kind of business, and B, a beer business in general. And so when they start looking at some of these numbers now, you know, they're, they're getting turned down by banks or the SBA loan at you know seven, eight, nine percent interest is dramatically higher monthly payment and it screws their operating budget up. And then rent's a big piece of it too. You know, when I opened my brewery, it was like 3500 bucks a month. Oh, it was 2500 bucks a month. And I think they're paying close to 6000 now. And, you know, it's just a different, it doesn't feel as easy, I guess, as part of it. Yeah, and when just people aren't throwing money at it left and right, um, one conversation I had with someone a few months ago was looking at it from the standpoint of like, you know, if you're in your late 30s or in your 40s, craft beer was something new and cool to uh, try out. And now it's just something. So if you're someone in your mid to early 20s, like, uh, a, a brewery is kind of just like any other bar. You're not going to anything special. Your your town probably has several. It's it's not the same. It's not quite the same allure that it once had. So that seems like it, that also isn't kind of one of the problems that breweries have to face. Yeah, and I I did a conspiracy like rabbit hole a while back about you know in 
2010, if, if you were a big mega brewer and you wanted to destroy this counterculture, what would be the best way to do it? Maybe you should buy some of those breweries that are the most popular and like have this sellout conversation. And just from 2010 to now, I just feel like the cachet, the counterculture, the uniqueness of craft beer definitely has eroded, not to the point that we don't still love to drink it, but it definitely yeah. changed the national conversation for sure. Yeah, it's still, I mean, I, I mean, I, I think I have a, like maybe a skewed perspective, but I still would much rather go hang out at a brewery than go to just a bar. Yeah, and I think there's a lot of guys like us. I just, I don't know if there's as many as there used to be because maybe we're, or, or we're not willing to fight to do it either. I remember back 15 years ago, we had to like go behind some place and there was knock three times on the warehouse door <laughs> it was it was hard to find and you know so now yeah. it's they're everywhere yeah there was there was definitely way more uh way more effort that had to go into finding one than now there's any number of apps that you can open that's just going to show you the the closest brewery to your location which there are most likely going to be several um <clears throat> so the uh, so I did see one of the debates you recently got into with Aaron uh, concerning competition from spirits. So what can you? Ex- oh yeah. You expand on your and I, when I saw that I was like, oh, that's great. I can bring that up during the podcast. Um, with, <laughs> so expand on your opinions of like the because I I kind of want to. I, I plan on naming this podcast unless it goes completely different than how we go about uh, like your latest articles that you put out about like how to save the damn brewery instead of your, mm-hmm. your just don't open it. Um, Cause I think there are a lot of people like in that um, mode right now that are trying to come up with every possible way to, if their brewery is still pop, uh, still profitable to keep that profit going or still trying to get to that level of profitability. Um, so what is your take on the, the um, competition from spirits as a whole and then ready to drink cocktails? Uh, so basically if you look at, there's, and I have pulled these different charts in the past, but if you look at over the last 20 years, beer's progression against wine and spirits specifically, both wine and spirits have ticked up somewhat and spirits a little bit more than wine, and that's taken market share away from beer. So aggregate numbers across the board, beer is sort of struggling against wine and spirits. So Aaron's argument is that uh, you know the, the bottles have been slowing down, and, and he says that in the last few months. It wasn't uh, an aggregate five-year number, but he's like, "Hey, we had a we had a great quarter. We beat spirits." But uh, he was trying, in my opinion, he was trying to sort of ignore the influence of RTDs, which I think are the single biggest problem. If Crappier had to pick one enemy right now, RTDs are fighting to be able to be uh, allowed to be sold where beer and wine is sold because it's a low. It's like the five percent ABV, six percent, whatever. They currently can't be at a gas station. They currently in Texas can't be at a grocery store in the same way. And if they could, they would not only take shelf space, they already have market share. 
And in a lot of ways, they have a branding that appeals to that younger demographic in a way that beer currently isn't. I I think you're talking about a 20 to 25% reduction in sales at, at a grocery store across the board. Like, I think it's, it's a bad thing. Yeah, because they, I mean, they, they've kind of positioned themselves as the as the way craft beer was five, 10 years ago, that, that mm-hmm. new shiny, although I mean, I, and Aaron, I believe came back at you with this point that everyone thought seltzers were going to be the same thing too, but I mean, people still buy and drink seltzers, but that definitely fizzled out quite a bit. So yeah, are rate, I- RTDs the same thing? Or are they a lasting uh, trend? So for me personally, I think that the the RTDs have something very different. And there's two main things that they have that not only does beer not have, but seltzer didn't. And I I would argue, I'd love to go back in time and talk to 2018 Chris and see if he thought that seltzer was going to be the next next big thing, because I'll bet you didn't. Um, I think you were right. Yeah, I did not. And I mean, I thought they like that craft breweries should offer them um, as an alternative to people, but I didn't. I uh, I feel like I'm going to say for sure that I didn't think they were going to be the biggest thing. And then someone's going <laughs> to go find some, an some old pod. That's going to go yeah, pull find, it. <laughs> yeah, find the clip where I say everyone needs to watch out. But I, I don't remember. My my opinions often I'll base on like just what I prefer, and I've never really liked or cared about seltzer. So I'm I'm just gonna say that no, I did not think that they were going to be the end of craft beer. Yeah. So seltzers, in my opinion, when they came out into that five to seven percent ABV range, they were technically a new flavor outside of wine coolers, which would never have been anything you know substantial. RTDs are different. When you go to a bar, cocktail bars are making these flavors. RTDs are, are, are flavors and concepts and mixed characteristics that are already existing and already have a fan base. Yeah. So they're just playing on that, bringing it to you, handing it to you. And we can argue about it all day long, but giving you one that you can drive home with in your hand. Um, so I think that's part of it. And then the other part of it is that capitalization-wise – Spirits in general has more cash floating around in it, more money for marketing. They understand that um, authenticity matters less, and it's just about get the shelf space, push it home, make the marketing work. And I, just, I don't think that most breweries can compete in that that playing field. I just, and not, and that's not a negative to them. I think they're more, we're better at being artists than we are businessmen. Put it that way. The I, I do think one thing against rtds is that there are a lot of bad ones like really bad ones um so if people have their first try and it being as bad as some of the ones i've tried uh that could keep people from going back to them uh i don't think i've ever had any that i would like drank and was blown away by how amazing they were uh so it, that's the only thing that makes me think that they may not have the staying power. Now, I've never had any from like the large brands, so maybe they are good. I've mainly had just more of like small craft ones. Yeah, 
Well, I, I would say like I'm not the target market either. So maybe maybe our palates aren't necessarily the best ones to choose. There's a lot of really bad beer that gets sold all the time too. But yeah, that's um, that is a very good point that I still don't understand how that happens in this day and age. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm not even talking about like the the pompous of like that macro is the crap because like that. While it may not be your taste, it's it's still good quality. Like you're buying that because you know what the taste is. Like there's like legitimately just badly made beer that people are buying and consuming. Yeah, textbook off flavors and stupid packaging. It's, it's it blows my mind. So you list seven ways that uh, people can save their brewery. Uh, and so you, you touched on one of them already, which was rent. Mm -hmm. So the, the, the problem I see there though, is that, you know, a lot of the places I've seen close that I have like actual inside knowledge of what happened. One of the biggest problems would have been their building. Uh, however, it, it's not because of the cost of that building. It's because it's not. It wasn't somewhere desirable to go to. But being able to be somewhere that's desirable to go to would be in conflict of what you're saying is to find, make sure you have a cheaper uh, location. So I, I don't. Um, I, I wouldn't know what guidance to give a brewery owner from that standpoint. So I guess it would just be locking a really long lease. <laughs> That's part of it. So traditionally, when you go in to do a lease, you, you normally will negotiate two, three to five year leases or, or extensions. And then you'll normally negotiate being able to stay on beyond that, but it will be at fair market value because the landlord's not willing to lock a rate in. Yeah. And obviously you can push for it and you can pay more today. But so, yes, so most people have got six to 10 years guaranteed and then who the hell knows? And that's a big problem we currently face today is that if you had six to 10 years and you opened up in 14, 15, you're about to be in a lot of trouble because the value of real estate's just gone through the roof. But you can go back and renegotiate that lease now. You can have a, a broker you know, talk about what the next 10 years is going to be. Obviously, there's uncertainty. You can make the argument that the current uh, rent rates and the, the current real estate values have to come down least momentarily blah 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 I mean, that's not my job that's your brokers but yeah i definitely think that you got to get a handle on that today and, and or buy the building maybe you can put together an investment group and they can purchase the building drop your payment um the breweries that have tried that that didn't it hasn't worked for them in some cases but you've got to do something the that i i have seen a few places do that where they'll they'll sp spin off like kind of a separate entity with different uh, div different group of investors that purchase the building and then they lease basically off of themselves and some other investors who have a little bit more I guess incentive to not milk every last penny out of the brewery for the, the lease payment well it's one of the dumbest things in the rent industry in my personal opinion is that when they buy the building, they pay for it at a certain price. They pay today's price. They finance it at today's interest. But then the landlord 10 years from now wants to say that because the building's worth more, the rent should be more. 
but you know, at that point, he's almost paid off for at least a big chunk of it. And so they don't have to in yeah. the sense of they're still planning and scheduled to make a really good return on investment. Um, so, yeah, if you have your buddies essentially in the holdings company that owns the real estate and then you lease from them, technically they're still going to make great money and they can hold everybody accountable in a better way. Yeah, and you're right because the the only possible change in expense would be uh, your taxes may have gone up some, but definitely not to the extent that uh, some of the lease um, – uh, increases would account for? Well, most uh, commercial leases are triple net, meaning that you would pay. Oh yeah. You pay the taxes anyway. So yeah, there's no tax. There, there's no increase in, in costs. You, you're just not upping your, your revenue. Um, yeah, yeah like that Even was, that was one of the, um, biggest contributing factors. The barrel culture was their, I can't remember what factor it was, but their their lease renewal was a times X number of what they were already paying. And it just, he said, became like it wasn't worth doing at that point. Well, yeah, especially if you're barely making money and or not yet making money uh, at the current rent rate, people just sort of, I don't know where landlords get this from, the they, they have to at some point have a discussion with themselves in which they say, I'm going to raise the rent and this business must do these things to be able to justify the, the triple the investment. Where do they think the money comes from? Yeah. Am I charging $19 a beer now? Like I don't. <laughs> well, and just for, and then you're completely limiting what business could possibly even move into that building like, and afford that rent. Um, like, yeah, I don't, I, but I think that's a problem just across every type of real estate in this country right now that it's become unaffordable from every standpoint. Yeah, I don't think it's by any means limited to breweries. You're going to see the small boutique in downtown that's just not going to be able to handle about $22,000 a month rent while they're selling $9 socks. You know, it just doesn't work. And so I think you'll see a lot of that. Jason... Santa Maria from Second Self Brewery in Atlanta, when I interviewed him, they closed and largely because their rent was tripling. And he told me that another brewery has looked to go in there because it's already finished out as a brewery. And the landlord now wants 5X. And so he's raised it even from there. <laughs> <laughs> Apparently that landlord has not read the room of where, <laughs> where actually, I mean, it's not even craft breweries, it's alcohol in general. I've talked to um, people who own beer and liquor stores and their sales are way down also across the board, beer and spirits. Um, yeah. I, I mean, I, I wish I had that problem where I owned a bunch of real estate and was just raising the rent constantly on people. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I mean, they, they stand to lose sometimes. So at the end of the day, there's still risk, but yeah. it does appear over the last 20 years that that hasn't been very much risk. So, um, I think, uh, one of your other points is a, a big point of that some breweries may get caught up in is the stop investing and growing on distribution, like spending Mm -hmm. tons of money to build 
a portion of your business that brings in a fraction of the profit. Yeah, I think this is a thing I hear a lot from both breweries that have been on the podcast and just friends and people in the industry that I talk to, that the way as an industry that we set pricing is to go produce a, a recipe, like decide I'm going to be in the Pilsner market or the Imperial Stout market or whatever, and you walk the aisles, write down everybody's prices, and you go, I think I'm better than them, I'll be seven cents more. I, <laughs> I don't have the, the national cachet that they do, so... I'm going to be 50 cents less a case or whatever. And then they go back after you know a few months of selling that to a distributor at 30 points off and they kind of reworked their numbers and they're like, holy crap, we actually lost money selling that at distribution. And that, that happens a lot. And it's just the model has been struggling for a long time and you wanted to be in the grocery store. You needed the billboard of being at the local bottle shop. So you think like even if it's a marketing expense, we still have to do it. But I would argue that where that may have made sense when you thought growth was um, around the corner, I don't think the next five years have that growth. And I think that you had better circle the wagons and get out of those ideas if, if you can at all. Great beer starts with great ingredients. At Havoc Brewing Supply, they offer a wide selection of premium hops, fruit purees, malt, cleaning supplies, and more. Their family-owned business is dedicated to helping you create the perfect beer. Havoc offers flexible contracts, lightning-fast shipping, and unrivaled customer service. Join the Havoc Brewing Supply family and elevate your brewing game. Shop small, brew big, grow together. Visit HavocBrewingSupply.com today to learn more. McClintock Distilling is Maryland's first and only certified organic distillery, handcrafting gins, whiskeys, vodkas, and cordials from non-GMO organic ingredients in downtown Frederick. Named the best vodka distillery in the country by USA Today, best gin in the world at the International Spirits Competition, and double gold at the World Spirits Competition for bourbon, rye, and gin. Open now for tours, tastings, and classes. Come sample the most awarded distillery in Frederick today. Yeah, I've talked to a few places that um, were like on shaky ground and they they put themselves in a much better position because they looked at all those things. Like they actually figured out exactly how much a can of beer cost them to produce and made adjustments and uh, streamlined and tweaked until they actually knew their profit margin. Yeah. And I was pretty, pretty ruthless in my book about mobile canners and some people have used them to success, but if you're mobile canning your beer through a distributor at retail, it's not profitable. Get the heck out of it or buy your own line. But what, uh, so of the 50 breweries that you have interviewed, is there one glaring commonality between all of them that contributed to failure or is there, um, is it just all over the board, like any kind of business of why they fail? I would say to be perfectly honest with you, I, I plan on writing a second book and in that book, I plan on drawing that thread. Okay. So I'm trying not to, because I wanted to wait till I get to 75 or hundred interviews. That being said, there is one that I think is probably fairly universal across the board, and it is that most of them got into it not with profit as the number one incentive. 
And I, same thing. I, I mean, I think that's what makes our industry cool and in that we get a lot of some of our favorite products because of that. <laughs> there was a CFO that always oversaw the triple IPA. You probably wouldn't have Galaxy in it. But yeah, I, but it, yeah, I mean, at the end of the day, does that lead to failure or success? And I, I think there's a definite thread there. Yeah, if there was a bean counter uh, calling all the shots, we probably wouldn't have seen the explosion of heavily adjuncted sours or stouts. <laughs> yeah, so you, you got to take the good and the bad. And obviously, you're going to get people in that are, are focusing on a business model and or a product that maybe aren't as profitable. But like we've always said, right, this is the best time in history to be a craft beer fan. Just maybe not a craft beer owner. So. Yeah. Do you do you find it hard to get guests to come on and open up and actually be candid about a failing business? So more often than not, I get told no. And I have a whole outline for the for the podcast broken into the different segments. I always send that first. I always yeah. have a conversation first. And there have been a couple that I talked to and I knew weren't going to tell me the truth. And so I didn't interview him and I wouldn't have him on the show. And the reason is it's not that the story is not interesting. It's not that they don't have something to contribute. It's that I, I want my, my guests need to be able to trust that they're being honest. And if I don't trust it, then it's not worth the time. So, yeah, I've listened to a couple where I don't think your guests were telling the truth. (laughs) or they weren't being completely honest with themselves for the role that they and their product played in the demise of the brewery. So that's happened a couple of times. And that is one of the reasons that I have that policy now. Okay. (laughs) There there were still some stories and obviously we could get into who they were. I think that's the point, but there's a lot of that. And that a lot of what, when I wrote my book, when I started the podcast, the first 10 episodes for sure were all just therapy for me. And if you listen to it, I, I'm, I'm like, I'm cussing. I, it's a, it's a, it's a bit of a mess. Yeah. And you still had an open wound from your, your own experience. Yeah. And, and most of these guys and girls were recently closed. I try to get them yeah. fairly close to that. Uh, except my most recent one was, 50 years ago, but, um, in general, a <laughs> little bit of a lead. They probably so they were at peace with it now. <laughs> yeah. But a lot of these guys don't know what happened and they haven't really faced it. And there's a lot of denial. And so I'm cautious also where I don't want to call somebody a liar on the air. Yeah. I typically will skirt around that and just be like, well, have you thought of this or like whatever? Um, but there's probably two that I could point to that I would like to maybe, edit and or redo at some point. Yeah, I've only done one episode in that realm. Um, and it actually, did did you listen to that or did you just see that I had done an episode with Full Tilt when they closed? I listened to them and then uh, I actually reached out to those guys too. Yeah, they, um, I we recorded that, I think we may have recorded that before they even na- announced it to the public. That they were closing. They weren't closed yet. Yeah, they weren't. They definitely weren't weren't closed closed yet. yet. But and I think when we recorded, they hadn't even let people know they were closing. They had let their employees know, but hadn't made a public post. Or it was like the day after they made it. But Dan's one of my best friends. Um, So like I knew he would be candid and I knew he would tell me the truth. 
but he still like was way more honest and candid than I thought he was going to be. And I feel like yeah, from the feedback I got, at least in the general area of here, everyone in the industry listened to that podcast. <laughs> yeah, and I thought he did a good job of really talking through it. I, I do think that with a little bit of time away from it, that he would come up with some other things to talk about and some different insights that he had. Because even when I was emailing them through the process, they were like, we want to talk about this more. I need two more weeks. I, yeah. I got to have, and I could just see, because I went through it, I could see them kind of coming to terms with all of what had happened and whose fault it was and where they felt the blame lay. And it, it's a tough journey, man. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And I probably should have given them a little more time, but... I don't know. I've, I, I, I asked him to be on almost as much as like I told him I thought it would be kind of cathartic for him. Um, and mm-hmm. he said afterwards, well, he said that actually the best thing was is that everyone he heard from said that he had listened to the episode so he didn't have to like go through the story over and over again. So it saved yeah. him from that. <laughs> you just be like, hey, what happened? And then just text him the link. Yeah. <laughs> Um, so that's the only time I, I think I've, um, I've tried to, maybe I've tried to make the, uh, the mistake of being, uh, toxically positive. (laughs) So I, I haven't, uh, I haven't done too many episodes with like people in my realm that have, um, closed, Although another, and I'm pretty sure he told me he wanted to come on and talk about the experience, but there was another local brewery to me uh, last week announced that they were going to be closing September 2nd, True Respite Brewing out of Rockville, Maryland is the newest local one to shut down for here. Yeah, no, I think there's going to be quite a few. And so not far from you, I think is uh, Rocket Frog. And yeah, Richard down in Northern. Time. He's like, dude, I'm. Yeah. He's like, I talked to so and so, and unfortunately, they're like sixty days away too. And it's just, yeah, it, it's a crowded area, and I, I don't know the dynamics of your market, but I'm sure there's there's quite a bit of that out there. Yeah, there. Well, I think we had rapid growth, um, so that may have uh, played into it a lot. Then there's also, I think there's somewhat of a gap in between the quality of breweries in this general area, mm-hmm. which plays into it also. Like there's a, uh, like any problem, there's a, there's a lot of things at play. Uh, we were also an area that was shut down for a long time. Some cities more than others for COVID and had to take on debt to survive that, um, which is definitely a big contributing factor to some breweries struggling right now is that they're um, paying paying back what they had to borrow to survive through COVID. Yeah, I know Richard had told me too that he felt like there was a big change when they went from focusing distro to focusing on on-premise sales that even he stopped going to certain breweries because of the drive and he would take the Uber number and like, you know, if I, I'm going to go to that brewery, I've got an Uber there to be safe and back. And it's like, it just tend to change the fun of hunting out new breweries, I guess, in a way. And he just sort of this went to the one near you, whether they were the best one or not. That kind of makes sense. And then we've, we've had some, like even retail places close lately. And 
the one of the biggest contributing factors to that is like those specialty beers that you used to go to a craft specific shop for at least here are everywhere now like all of those hype mm-hmm. sought after breweries that were hard to get their beer at one time are in gas stations now yeah that's part of just trying to continue growth and hang on and so if, if they're not moving in the seven spots they were in, then they can either invest in going deeper in those seven spots or they can just add 12 more, 15 more and go wider. And unfortunately, that, that looks good on paper, but it's unsustainable, I think, for everybody. So. so where do you think that it is doom and gloom or do you think it's more of what some people are saying that, and I, I think I've seen you say that this is not the case, that it's just a market correction and that um, the, that it, it's, it'll be fine again soon. I would probably take more of a cognitive approach to, to that. So instead of saying it's a binary one or the other, I would say that the craft beer industry in its current iteration can't move forward in a meaningful way financially. So we're going to have to restructure some of the existing breweries, probably to the tune of two to 3,000 of them. I don't know exactly how it's going to look. I I had predicted that the spring of 2020 was going to be the, a big bloodbath and when this whole thing started uh, before COVID had happened. And then everybody got a mess of money from the government and it was okay to shut down for a minute and kind of lick your wounds. And a lot of breweries that would have shut then punted and they're kind of shutting now yeah. and you're, you're really seeing that. And so I guess the short answer is I don't think it's doom and gloom. We're not going to 3000 breweries. Uh, I do think there's going to be a market correction. And I do think, unfortunately, a lot of brewery owners are going to lose their dream, lose a bunch of money in the process. But I do think that the industry is here to stay Again, I just it's going to have to refocus on what it's doing. And I personally believe, like I said, that RTDs are a problem. And if we need to have somebody out front that's actually doing something about it instead of the Brewers Association, which is a whole other soapbox of mine that is not. So. And I, th- I think, and you've, you kind of touched on it already for a little bit, and you, you lumped yourself into the group too. So I I have some questions about that where you said that a lot of people opening breweries didn't understand the complexities of running that type of business. Like they, they opened it just for the passion of making the beer and all that, but maybe necessarily weren't business people equipped to run a brewery. And I I think you said that you included yourself in that group, right? Correct. Yes. So what what was different because you you had already run um, a successful business with seven locations and so what is the differences between r- running those gyms to running a brewery that you felt like you were ill-equipped from a business acumen well so the short answer is when I first started the brewery, my wife and I tried to sort of replicate what we had done in the fitness side by having a bottle club and like a membership program. Because one of the big advantages of a gym membership from the owner's perspective is that if you ask me on April 1st how much money I'm going to make in May, I can tell you. 
Oh, because you just have that recurring. Just, <laughs> yeah. And the rent's going to be the same. Payroll's probably going to be pretty similar. Maybe it's July and half people are on vacation, so payroll's slightly lower, or it's January and people are working a little more hours, so payroll's 20% more. But payroll was, you know, maybe 15% of the overall expense ratio, so it wasn't a big deal. Yeah. Um, but with beer, it's not like that. And so the pro- the other problem with beer is that we understood what the three-tier system was and, like, what the limitations were to it, but I don't... I think it's, I don't, I have very few people that I know will admit or understand the short answer is how many morons there are throughout that process. So <laughs> the distributor rep, the distributor exec, the, the chick at the grocery store that runs the beer department and how, what you have to do to suck up to her to get you to sell her beer, your beer, and then consistently sell it. There's just, it, it isn't, you can't come in and say, look, here are the business principles at play. Uh, it costs this. I'll give you this if you'll give me that. It, all of it. It's just such a, it's a soft industry as far as like how things get done, but the margins are so tight that there's no room for error. And without doing spreadsheets and I don't just the whole idea, you got to suck up, you got to do ride alongs with your rep. And if you don't do yeah. it weekly, they forget about you. It's just, I don't know. I, I guess part of it is I don't know personally who is doing it well and who's doing it well for the last five or 10 years, except for one. And I haven't finished looking through his financials, but it sounds like he does know what he's doing. So, <laughs> um, okay. That makes sense. And then two, like the more, like you could really sell close to an infinite number of gym memberships and your costs don't go up at all. Unless everyone yeah, magically shows up, which I'm guessing is not the case. Yeah, it's usually 25% at most. It'll show up during the busy times of your membership. But yeah, fixed cost is part of it. And, and that can be, depending on the industry, bad because you have to put that fixed cost in place with zero revenue in the beginning. Yeah, You kind of have to do it with beer too. So it's not that dramatically different. But there, and there's so many moving parts of beer. So I actually talk about this in the book a little bit, but I've talked to brewery owners that were like, hey, we're really blowing up. We killed it this month. And I was like, well, what did you do about the extra inventory and cost of goods sold supplies you have to have? And they're like, what do you mean? You can't just double your output. You have to also double the amount of money that you threw away because in the budget, you will always have all of your costs floating there for at least two to three batches of of all of your beer. And if you don't plan for that, you're going to get behind because you're going to be in big trouble. Yeah, I guess when you when you factor in all of the moving parts and everything you have to account for when you're producing and selling a product that unfortunately is so relationship-based if you're in the distribution model. So it's not even like you – I mean, unless you're one of the absolute top-tier breweries that people just want, like you're – doing the the kissing up at every stage to make sure that mm-hmm. your beer is seen that like the costs are just coming at you from every angle and so many of those costs are also unfortunately commodities that are very volatile at least recently in pricing yeah so maybe you should just yeah. not open the damn brewery <laughs> I'm not, I'm not going to say that, but I will say 
watch your back. Yeah, you got a lot, a lot of things coming at you for sure. Because even like you said, it's it's relationship driven when you go to distribution. But you also said like I want the experience when I go into the tasting room. That's no less less relationship oriented in the sense that you got a great bartender and that bartender's pushing product and killing it, and then your competitor takes them and nobody likes the new chick, and it just it changes the entire environment. So it's it's always a struggle. All right, you convinced me. I won't open a brewery. <laughs> so if I would, I, I I'm betting from the the um kind of the niche you've uh, made for yourself. Do you get a lot of people approaching you before, like when they're considering opening to like uh, for advice? Well, so it. Yes and no. I, I get more than I ask for, but I make it a point <laughs> to tell people I'm not your consultant. And part of the reason is, to be honest, I wrote a book about how not to do it. I have a podcast interviewing people who didn't do it correctly, for the most yeah. part. And I have I interviewed Tommy Arthur at Lost Abbey last week, and kind of that argument was like, hey, industry luminary, what did you do that's right that we can all learn from? And so I, I've probably got five of those in, in the mix. But as a rule, I'm not an expert on what to do right. I'm an expert on what to do wrong. <laughs> so from that perspective, I will tear your business plan apart. You want to send it to me and I will yeah. rip it apart. But I won't necessarily tell you that this is the seven things you should put in there that will make sure that you're successful, but I can tell you where you're wrong. So. You can tell people definitely what to remove from there to, <laughs> to avoid being and on your podcast. <laughs> this yeah. is what you can do from us uh, not talking in a few years about... <laughs> I've had a few people send me business plans. I did send them back and I was like, bro, you will not be doing $90,000 a month out of your tasting room. The second month. Open. You're not. I'm sorry. <laughs> so I would, I would argue that I'm, I'm sure it was a great um, interview with lost Abby, but what he did right means nothing for today's market. Yeah, well, what like, he did right in the sense of like so opened he just at the right time, down. and <laughs> oh, that's true. They did yeah. do a decent amount of shrinking to stay. Yeah, he had a huge pivot, and that's what I wanted to hear about is okay. how you go from national distribution, everybody knows you, half the breweries in the United States are inspired by you, to they close the original location, they switch to a tasting room model, they have had to kill some of the brands, they dumped a ton of beer that you know they used to be able to sell for. $80 an ounce. Um, so it's just that that's what I wanted to hear is how, how do you lick those wounds? How do you go forward? And and how do you have any confidence that it would work? I'm curious of all of those things. I got to listen to that one because I, I actually I didn't realize all of um, all of that had happened to them. Yeah, I was I, that was one of when I was in San Diego in 2000 and like 11, maybe that was one of my favorite places to go to. Because they, um, well, we were there visiting cousins, and we both had our little kids with us, and they brought out like big buckets of sidewalk chalk and just let them draw all over the floor of the brewery. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that was a cool spot. I went there in thirteen, and it was one of those kind of like seminal brewery experiences that really defined what I did, and a lot of what I did was inspired by sort of the the risks they took and the cool stuff they came up with. So it was a, it was a fun interview for me for that reason too. It, it was like coming full circle. So they closed that original 
production facility that kind of just had a little seating area right in the mix of it and now have like a have a proper tap room and uh, type of model they have three actually and so they're opening a fourth yeah they they call them like the sanctuary the church you know obviously lost abbey ish names yeah and they don't do guest beer and so they only have their stuff they don't have a pilsner and and those are all risks that i was curious if i was doing it today i would have all of those things i would have a killer IPA that I probably didn't make because I'm not a great IPA guy. Um, you know, a couple of Pilsners and stuff. People, I, I might probably would even have Bud Light on draft if I'm being honest. Like, <laughs> I, I don't, I, if I'm doing it now, I'm doing it for money and yeah. I don't see how you can make money without it. <laughs> if I remember correctly, you specialized in mixed fermentation, right? Yeah, right about 2017, I went full farmhouse. So we had played with it up until that time. And then everything was house culture, barrel aged, uh, moving forward after that. That was one of those things that looked like it was going to take off. And then it just seemed like the consumer faked every brewery out and was like, no, nah, we're kidding. We don't care. Yeah. Well, I interviewed Kevin Abbott from uh, <clears throat> the brewery in Florida, which for some reason I'm drawing a blank. Oh, Barrel Monks. And he basically said that it was probably Florida Vice that killed it. And so he blamed himself and some of him and his friends. <laughs> so it was that like, cheap stuff. But, but yeah, right about the time that I, I – you could also blame me because right about the time that I went full farmhouse, the market walked away and said, oh, well, if Kelly's doing it, I don't want any part yeah. of it. So, <laughs> but, yeah, it was, it, was, it, it was a good – it seemed like a good idea at the time, and I'm not sure that not doing it would have been a better idea because no one was going to be buying my Hefeweizen and Weizenbach either. We've clearly proven that, but – uh, you know, it was, a, it was a risk and it didn't pay off. So if there's one piece of advice that you would give, well, first we'll say the current brewery owner, what is it that you would say? Uh, current piece of advice would be, well, obviously it's all over the board as far as what I would suggest, but I would say the number one thing is to get a handle on what your comfort level for profitability is. And uh, you may disagree with me, but the conversations that I've had with brewers, 70% or more are not profitable on an annual number. And I think that is causing more stress and more problems and more business mistakes than anything is constantly having refinancing debt and or bringing on new investors. They don't currently across the board have a business model built on profit. And that's what I would say they should do. Or, or just say, we don't give a crap about profit. And we're just not going to worry about it. And then all the stress is gone. But either way, pick yeah. a side. Profit or no profit, put your flag in the sand. Yeah. Either want it uh, and figure out how to get there or don't care that you're going to go bankrupt eventually. Yeah. Or not. Maybe you won't. Like, And I'm not going to use examples, but there are breweries that I know of right now who have tons of money from investors coming in, kind of like the winery model, because it's cool and I want free that beer because it's some of the most – well sought after beer in the United States. And if they're cool with it and they want to keep investing in it and they get free beer and be have their wedding at the plate, fine. Everyone's on yeah. the same page. But when you're, I don't want to say defrauding, but like you're giving investors the opinion there'll be an 8% annual return and you don't pay them anything for five years, that's not fair to everybody. And that's, again, if set the expectations and then I have no problem with it. And I'll even go to that brewery because I know that this this beer is not economically viable, and that in itself makes it beautiful to me as a consumer. <laughs> but <laughs> to be honest, um, would would you have different 
one specific different piece of advice for a prospective brewery owner or would you like just give that same same advice yeah i think the one of the biggest things that should be told to current current future brewery owners is stop going to the bottom and we have 70% of the breweries in the united states that make less than 1000 barrels a year which equates to somewhere around half a million dollars in revenue and it's just not enough to sustain operations in a meaningful way and give a quality of life. It doesn't make sense. And so I would say, as loud as I possibly can, stop freaking doing that. Like, <laughs> open a big enough facility or find a place you can make that much beer to make something that's a legitimate business that's large enough to actually have a possibility of being something uh, that will be carried on in the future. Where do you think that threshold is? What barrelage should a brewery aim for that you think is uh, sustained profitability? Well, so it depends on a lot of factors, obviously, and you should be aggressive on your rent and um, you know, really think about how you're going to go distribution versus not distribution or self-distro if you can legally in your state. But it's somewhere around the 1,500 to 2,000 barrel mark is where you're not so big that you're relying on distribution out of state because that's hard to rely on because like i said there's a lot of idiots in there <laughs> but, um, but it's also not so small that you don't have the potential to generate enough revenue to actually create some meaningful profit so finding a model within that barrelage and, and i'm sure there's a home brewer listening right now who's going to say well yeah but you got to start somewhere sure but you don't start with a system in a building that has no possibility of doing 1500 barrels if you do that you are not going to be successful, in my personal opinion. So you don't think that the corner pub kind of model um, is a sustainable one? Well, so that's a different argument. That would be a bar that sometimes brews its own beer. Okay. That, if you're doing it right, but so the other thing that happened when the model shifted is that the, the, the industry – kind of talk about it didn't. And so 10 years ago, we, every brewery that opened was in in competition with big beer. That's we were going after them. We were going to take market share from Bud Miller and Coors. And now if you're going to do the corner pub, you're in competition with the other corner pub, not the other corner brewery. You are, but you're also in competition with every bar and restaurant in town because any butt in a seat that they have is a butt not in your seat. And if you don't have food, if you don't have spirits, if you don't have events and reason people come, then you're not competing. You're just opening up a place that's that's there as well. It's a fifth choice. And as a consumer, why do I care? Makes sense. All right. Um, completely unrelated to beer, but your previous business, <clears throat> why does yeah. no one hold on to gyms? Are they, are they only profitable to sell off? Or because it, it seems like, Gyms are always changing hands and changing names. Uh, so it depends on some factors, but a big part of it is the fact that when you have receivables, especially if they're contracted receivables and you've done it right, that is an asset. And so that asset is a saleable asset. It's okay. a loanable asset. You can use it as collateral. And so there's money. I guarantee you, we all shake our fists and talk crap about people who sell out in the beer industry, but if people were constantly coming around offering different brewery owners half a million bucks to walk, you'd see a lot more walking. <laughs> so it's a it's a business arena where there's always people looking to purchase them. 
Absolutely. Yeah. Okay. And, and, and I think, cause I think the, the profit model is a little easier to track. It'd be a good way to say it. If, if they're not making money, I could go into a gym still to this day who is not profitable and I could turn that around and, and create more money out of it in a fairly short period of time, really with not a lot of investment. Okay. I wouldn't, wouldn't need to expand to six states. I would just need to spend <laughs> a little bit of money on the, make some phone calls. You know, yeah. it's, it's a, it's a lower barrier to entry too, but. Yeah. Cause it just seems like there, there's a short lifespan of how long a gym is going to be the same name before <laughs> it's, it's purchased or change like that. It, um, it's just something I always wondered. <laughs> yeah. Um, depending on what you're talking about too, on the other side, there could be, some of them have a low barrier to entry. So like the CrossFit guys, they put in $30,000, worth of equipment. They don't renovate the building much to put in bathrooms and a little bit of electricity. So you can get a hundred grand from somewhere or have the landlord renovate it. And um, there's a lot, there's a lot of people can come in there with absolutely no idea what they're doing spend a year and realize that they're in deep trouble. But on the larger ones, if you're spending, you know, half a million bucks to make a gym, usually you're doing it right. And then that's just an asset that you have. So you can sell it. Yeah. It's, it's more of like the traditional gym that I'm thinking of, not a, a big warehouse with some ropes and tires. Yeah. The big ones just get bought out. So that's usually what it boils down to. Okay. Because it's a, as you said, easy to predict your cash flow and your return. And uh, it's a safer investment, I guess. Yeah. Well, like I, like I said in the thing that you, the video you watched, I sold a brewery for 8% of what I sold my gems for. So give you an idea. <laughs> <laughs> uh, is there anything uh, um, I haven't covered that you would want people to know? Well, actually give, like, how should people follow you? Uh, the easiest way is just look up Dan Brewery. That's sort of my uh, handle. <laughs> so it's Dan Brewery on X or whatever it is, Twitter. Uh, Instagram, I think, is How Not to Start a Dan Brewery. Facebook is Dan Brewery. And then you know, the podcast is How Not to Start a Dan Brewery. So I love feedback. I love being disagreed with. So absolutely reach out to me if you have a comment, concern, or criticism. So email's fine. Just freeplaykelly at gmail.com. Um. Do you have time to answer some intentionally stupid questions? For sure. Who would win a battle between a ninja and a pirate? Ninja. That's wrong, but thank you. <laughs> uh, does pineapple belong on pizza? No, no, it does not. That is correct. Uh, name a famous person you would love to meet. Mm, Tony Robbins. Why him? He's an interesting character that uh, the th this advice and suggestions that he gives, he does in a way that uh, I could never do. I, I, he's never condescending. I don't know how he does that. <laughs> I would just love to hear it. <laughs> Is Nickelback a good band? No, but they were in 96. Only for that one year? <laughs> right. <laughs> what is the strangest purchase you've ever made or stupidest? Strangest purchase I've ever made. I don't know why I got nothing for that. What about stupidest purchase? Hmm. 
bought a golf cart that doesn't work. I was stupid. But <laughs> if you had a pet parrot, what would you teach it to say? Fuck you. That is <laughs> like one of the most common answers. I thought for sure you were gonna go with don't open the damn brewery, but Nah. I can't teach it absolutes. You can open a brewery if you want to. I just get the right to make fun of you if you do. <laughs> and interview you in a few years. <laughs> What's the one item that you cannot live without? Chocolate. What is your most unpopular food opinion? Hmm. I like Thai food, but not coconut. Isn't that in almost everything? Yeah. You got to take the coconut out. or I, I can like overlook it, but I'll eat the Thai food still, but I hate the fact that coconut's in it. That's interesting. If you could have a lifetime supply of anything, what would it be? Happiness. That's the best answer yet. <laughs> no, seriously. Everyone always goes with like a material good. That's bravo. I mean, actually, I was going to do more, but I think we should end on that note. <laughs> that was perfect. <laughs> um. Well, thank you so much for your time today, and thank you for uh, reaching out to me. I, I think, um, I think people who think brewery owners should definitely listen to your podcast so they can learn those things not to do. Yeah, well, I hope they do because ultimately the whole point is to make the industry better, and, and I want to still have beer around. So, you know, guys, please stay alive, stay strong, and, and keep growing. When uh, have you started your new book, or is that a planned thing that's at some point down the road. I'm trying my best not to, but I have some <laughs> like notes in my phone and some like outliney type stuff. And admittedly, a couple of these last articles I wrote were sort of finding my voice and what okay. I want to say and how I want to say it. But I'm trying not to really set anything in stone because I have a bad habit once I've kind of created something. It's I can chisel it, but it's tough for me to knock it completely down and start back over. So okay. All right, so just follow Kelly at all the social media places, and then you'll know when or if that book happens. True. Um, so yeah. thank you. Uh, thank you, everyone, for listening. Cheers. The Uncapped Podcast is produced by Graham Cullen and me, Chris Sands. Be sure to like us on Facebook, and if you've enjoyed these podcasts, please leave us a review on Google Play or the iTunes Store. A special thanks to Double Motorcycle for providing our theme music. Thanks for listening. Oh my God, that's good.